listening to Driven Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hey, all you gearheads and car fiends, welcome to Driven Radio Show, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield here with my co-host and engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Groves. So that's me. We are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios. As we look around the studio, and I say we because only Mark and I can do this right now, <laughs> and, and Mr. Jeff Stites, who's uh, on Zoom with us, he'll be able to look around the studio a little bit as we pan. There's an increasing quantity of cameras and lights and YouTube stuff. We're going to be on YouTube soon. I thought it was oh. a court deposition. <laughs> 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 It's not like that's completely <laughs> yeah. out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> that may be the future. Who knows? Yeah. Where were you on the night of? <laughs> I was right here. We're making a podcast. Leave me the hell alone. We have GoPros up and cameras and and lights and all kinds of stuff. And we're just waiting for our good friend, Mr. Pedwatt, to come and set it up the way it all makes sense because we don't know anything. No. We no. don't know nothing. YouTube, it's coming, folks. We will keep you apprised. Uh, all the gear is here. We've laid out literally hundreds of dollars and uh we're gonna be up and running soon well that's kind of exciting yeah it is i'm i'm very excited by it i hope, I hope people will still should... listen when they actually see us in action oh lord <laughs> look it's those two escapees for the home from the vi- for the visually offensive <laughs> dear god what happened <laughs> you know, there, hey where's your covid mask put your covid mask back on when i worked in radio uh, when I was a DJ back yeah. in radio, uh, that was one of the funny things about actually meeting people who had been listening for quite some time. And then they finally meet you at some event. You know, you're out broadcasting live from a freaking muffler shop in Columbia, Missouri, <laughs> which I did. Oh, my God. No, I'm sure you did. Yeah, that was. A, no, no. Tell your story. That was thrilling. I but uh, um, most of the time I would meet people and they'd like, oh, you're you're Mark in the Dark Summers. Yeah, that's me. Mark in the Dark. Mark in the Dark. And they were like, yeah you don't really look anything like I thought you would. I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, I thought you'd be taller and kind of blonde and to be honest, kind of ugly. You sound a lot. I'm like, taller how do radio. I, how do I, how do I interpret that? And they were like, no, 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 uh, you look fine. It's just, uh, I, I thought you'd be different. And it was partly, it was because of my sense of humor and my energy. Is and that I guess it? They just figured I was some goofy looking guy having fun. And no, I'm just some goofy looking guy having, having fun. fun. Yeah. Well, you know, shoe fit. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to be appropriate. Hey, speaking of exciting stuff, you found something you've been oh looking for for a really long time, and it wasn't it, a set of Craigers. <laughs> the two weeks uh, since uh, last time we chatted. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, surprisingly enough, I I was you know I've been hunting for a car, hunting for a car, and every time I finally go, oh, okay, I'll buy it. It's usually gone, but or it ends a, up being a piece of a POS. But there's a standard that you've been holding yeah. all those cars to. My first car was a 1955 Plymouth Savoy. Uh, it was an eight-cylinder, three-speed, uh, two-door. And we've talked about this thing at length, yeah. especially... <laughs> the, Ad nauseum. I, well, I imagine somebody's reaching for that off button right now going, oh, God, not no, him again. We, we've spoken about... Why you don't armor all a bench seat before a date? <laughs> we have, uh, and how to get airborne uh, in a car that's stupidly heavy? How fast not to drive it when you value your life? Uh, <laughs> Why a lack of seat belts is a dangerous thing? <laughs> you think a little bit, but uh, I, uh, you know, I've I've ruined the days since I let it go. Nineteen eighty four, blah blah blah. And uh, there was a gentleman that I found my, my parents or my mom, actually, after she passed, I got this packet of crap that was all stuff about the Plymouth. My mom had saved everything. Well, she was your, such a wonderful your, your, pack rat. Your mom, bless her soul. Yeah. Was a pack rat. Yeah. She did save. She everything. was a very, very organized hoarder. You wouldn't really know. Look, you know, looking at her house, it's like, my God, this woman keeps a lot. But then you start digging. You're like, holy cow. How how could a closet hold that much through the magic of Jody? <laughs> but uh, be, be that as it may, uh, I got this thing that that had the name of the person my dad sold it to. It had the uh, the receipt because my mom kept receipts for everything. And um, so you started. the. So I started that. Now, that was about two and a half, three years ago. Right. And I got hold of the guy that my dad had sold it to and he's 
quite an old gentleman, as super nice. I remember Mi- that, Mr. Car. Dillard. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, cool. Who'd you sell it to? I don't remember. Son of a bitch. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, and those were the old uh, small number VINs, if they were even VINs. A lot of times, especially back in 1955, they just had what was stamped on the engine. Yeah. That's what identified the car, which is how you were effed in trying to figure out, okay, is this the original vehicle or not? So uh, I, I waited a couple of years and I thought, you know what? I better give this guy a call again. I had his number still in my in my phone. I'm like, this is the last ditch because otherwise I'm going to throw that money at something else. Yeah. yeah. Third time you call him. Hey, yeah. hey, I, I he, don't know who I sold it to. Are you going to bring Jack Benny back? <laughs> yeah. Oh, we had some great meandering conversations. It was cool to find out he he'd, uh, served in Vietnam. His four wow. kids were also military veterans and okay. super nice kids. No, and I'm sorry. By the way, one works for the government. In, and, and I mean, I found out. But it's such a sweet guy. Anyway, uh, to make a long story long, he uh, he said, well, you know, it's funny that you're calling about that. My son bought it. I'm like, what? Wait, what? He had bought the car. He redid the paint, redid the interior, put different wheels on it, had it for a few years. Then his son had it for a few years, but then his son went into the military, knew he would be gone for four years because he went to Germany and this and that. Yeah. And he's like, Dad, yeah, go ahead and sell it. I don't want it just sitting there. His okay. dad did, sold it to a lady. And come to find out, I he was more than kind. He gave me his son's number. I didn't even ask for it. I was like, you know what? I'll see if I can look your, your son up and and go from there. He's like, I got his number. And I'm like, dude, I've already just intruded into your life. Like, ah, no, it's all good. So he gave me the number. I, uh, I called, the, I called the son in Oklahoma City. Like what? Four and a half, five hours south of here. Yeah. Well, depending upon who you're riding with. And and he uh, he has it. And what he had done, he has the car. He has the car, and he he went on a hunt for it too. Sound familiar? And he found the lady because of the stuff that his dad had, and uh, she had driven it for eight or nine years. So they bought it in '84. This is '88. It's around '95, '96, maybe even '97. Uh, she parked it in a field and left what? it. What? Yeah. Who knows what happened with it? Because uh, it did have a uh, okay. dent well, in one quarter panel. And first it, of all, you and I both graduated from high school in the eighties. So 1995 seems like it was about 15 years ago, but so was 2008. Yeah. Uh, 2009 now. So it has sat for a very long time. Um, when he found it, it had probably, uh, probably nine to 12 inches of just shit stuff in the uh, floorboards. That's and, okay. And the I, trunk. I mark the, uh, the bad language tab every yeah. time I post a show. So roll. I mean, it was something that you would have had to have shoveled out and he did, but he, he got the car, pulled it onto a trailer, took it to uh, his home and he, sh- he sent me pictures of it. So we, we've talked back and forth a bunch of times. Uh, he's asked me a bunch of questions about the history and then come to find out he did way. Oh my God. He went into the history on this thing. And he's f- discovering all types of weird things. Apparently, now I don't know if this is true. I didn't look it up. I just trusted him because he knew a lot more about it than I did. Okay. Uh, on the back of um, your steering wheel attaches to this kind of hub that goes down the steering yeah, column. Back of that hub is a uh, are numbers that indicate the color of the car. You're kidding. On no. the steering wheel? Yeah. Weird. That is weird. It's Yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, actually, your steering wheel attaches to the hub, and it's on the back of that hub. When he looked that up... He ran at all types of things. There are various places in on various owners' uh, documentation. Sometimes they say it's a truck. Sometimes okay. they say it's a car. Sometimes they say it's a Belvedere well, again, rather than a Savoy. They, they had really limited VINs back yeah. then, so they didn't. They wouldn't call out engine color. Everything well, that else. makes you wonder is that the original engine from when the car because it was twenty four years old when I got it. Yeah. So is that even the original engine that came with the vehicle? And when I got it, it already had damage that was being uh, taken care of. A front fender had gotten dinged up and there was body putty on an off-white, nasty-ass looking it had been sitting in a barn for quite some time before I even got so it. So this car's been resurrected. It's, resurrected you know, 51, 52, once. 53, 54, yeah, 55. One, um, one piece at a time. It, uh, it, the back of that, I brought up the steering hub because it said it should have been that seafoam green. What? The color code on the back of the steering wheel hub was seafoam green. 
the color by like, the interior like dash should have been that kind of pinky flesh that came out then. I don't remember what it's called. A peach? Oh, it's um, probably, they probably called yeah, it moonlight a coral, coral or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's all these weird things indicating. It's like that car had been through some, it spent some time in prison. Okay. Some hard years before <laughs> so, it got to me. Now, so this now, guy has it. Yes, he has it. And he's, and he's, he's done a bunch to it. And oh yeah, he uh, the other pictures was uh, the floor that he rewelded and the bodywork that he did. <laughs> the street signs. It's not where they should have been. <laughs> no, I think he <laughs> bought some floor pans and then had to kind of make up the rest of it. But uh, oh come on, man! You want a big yield I, sign under your passenger seat? I asked him if he was willing to sell it, and he said, "You know, I'm not opposed to it. Let me talk to my family. I'm I'm kind of fifty fifty on it." But he did say, "You know, I put a lot of work into it." So you know, I think okay. it's gonna he's gonna want to be in the low to mid teens. I've seen some pictures. Yeah, it still needs a lot of work. It's it ain't the work. worst thing in the world. Mm-mm. But you and I had a conversation about this over the weekend. Yeah, and here's the weird and, thing. And and what I told you and what other people haven't heard yet is, I've had a couple of cars in the past that I wanted to try <laughs> to track down, and one of them was the Camaro I had when I was in high school. I had an Berlinetta. I had an '84 Camaro Berlinetta. Which, for anybody who knows, you know, uh, third-gen Camaros are going, really? You want that back? <laughs> uh, especially since mine had the gutless 2.8 six-liter. It's and the it was sexiest thing an Amway it. saleswoman oh, ever drove. I could have been outrun by an old lady with a Kmart car. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and I've gone looking for that car. What, As it turned out, Chevy... In 1984, built a quarter million Z28s. Yeah. They made 10,000 Berlinettas. The damn things wow. are actually rare. And they there was one called a Starship Berlinetta. It's all digital dash, which by today's standards looks pretty pud, but at the time looked really cool. as lights all over everything. And I've gone looking for those and thought about trying to buy one. And certainly I've had the money to buy one. I got the money yeah. to go snag up the nicest one you've ever seen right this minute. But, but in speaking with Rhonda, who oftentimes has a better head about these things because it's outside looking in, you know, I always get wrapped up in all the car crap I do. Ooh, wouldn't that be cool? And my wife's going, <laughs> no, stupid. It wouldn't. <laughs> and what I said to you over the weekend at, it, and I, I have this point of reference because I've yeah. had the Berlinetta conversation with Rhonda more than a few times is don't look back. Yeah. Don't look back. This is something you've already done. You had that car and you've got very fond memories of that car. This would kind of be akin to don't meet your heroes. Don't re-meet <laughs> that car and let it have you come away disappointed. The interesting thing for me, what hit me when, um, and it was really when he sent all the pictures, because I, I'd been told what it looked like. And even the, uh, the old gentleman, uh, shared a picture with me, uh, of kind of what I'd come to. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It was just a side shot, but, uh, Mike is his name. And Mike, if you happen to listen to this, thank you. First of all, thank you. It's been a joy talking about it and i am glad to share anything else i can know or any other pictures i find maybe we drag because on here he has a whole book of its history let let him talk about all the messed up stuff that he fixed that you did but oh <laughs> shut up <laughs> <laughs> yeah that the wiggly front end might have been when i drove over a curb at a drive-through maybe uh, maybe i don't know however uh once I saw all the pictures of it and all the changes they'd done, they stripped off, you know, Plymouth on the front, took off the hood ornament, took off uh, the there's, side molding. There's a lot of trim. The thing looks yeah. like it, it's been stripped down. It's almost like they tried to shave it, but didn't have the guts to get rid of the door handles. Uh, okay. So it's got that kind of look, uh, so to speak. And then uh, talking to Mike, the, the fella, his dad took, um, he worked with a, a trailer company that, you know, makes just trailers and, mm-hmm. and, and boat trailers and this and that. He took four of those chrome wheels you see on boat trailers. Yeah, just wagon that's wheels. Went on, wagon that's what wheels. went on to it. So, um, you know, I had... So I, it has all of this. Then they redid the interior with these bucket seats that were in this red plush, and the car itself was maroon, and then redid red this and that. And I got to be honest, I really don't like the way it looks at all now. And looking at 
everything that was taken out of it, everything that was removed, uh, it's got a different engine in it. It's got a different everything in it. It's just a shell. Well, and it's just not and, my car anymore. And here's the thing. One, just the coolest freaking thing ever that you found it. I, yeah, that is awesome. That and, is incredible. And it puts something to rest. Two, have you ever heard the phrase, you can never go back home? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, maybe what's done is done. You found it. You know it exists. Somebody else has it and is remaking it in their vision. Yeah. The fact that it still lives, drives, and and breathes, that is fantastic. I'm extraordinarily happy to you because it kind of puts a bow on this story. Yeah. But you got to keep moving forward. And that said, you sent me pics of the most decrepit 1974 Corvette I've seen. <laughs> What one where I opened it and I saw, but it's got side pipes. It's got pipes. Oh boy, it's, it's a, a stingray. Side pipes for the love of Christ! I've looked at thousands of Corvettes, and this one checked almost every one of the wrong boxes. Almost uh, all of them. Almost that's why all I said them. it to you because I don't know jack about Corvettes. Oh, obviously, those, those, those seats are like, so ate up with does. mold. I almost promise you, when you sit in them, they go squish, <laughs> squish. Not a good thing. There was a red, I, white, and blue one I didn't send you. That well, I would <laughs> if I can convince you to do a third gen Corvette. I will help you find it. I will help you work on it. And you cannot believe how many manuals, spare parts, and extra yeah. Corvette things I've got laying around. That all those shelves, the cabinets in my garage that have the boxes stacked to the ceiling, <laughs> uh -huh. a lot of that is Corvette crap. Huh. A Who whole knew? lot of that is Corvette crap. <laughs> so I will help you. Keep that in mind. While I introduced our guest this week, Jeff Stites is, uh, he, he is the owner of Element Driven. Jeff grew up a car and motorcycle guy aided by his parents who worked for American Honda. He spent considerable time on two-wheeled endeavors, eventually road racing a number of Hondas, including, well, he got close to an RC30. That's good enough. That's better than <laughs> I ever did. I've seen one on a dealer's showroom and thought, oh, I can't afford it. And now I have money and I look <laughs> at them and I go, oh, I can't afford it. It's awful. <laughs> His racing itch didn't end with two wheels, though, as he spent a year behind the wheel of a Toyota sport racer. Jeff was the desktop publisher of Chevs of the 40s and helped launch Street Rod Headquarters, which is, and he's also a former art director at Sports Car Market Magazine. Gee, where have I heard that name before? <laughs> he has a company called Element Driven, and that is the source for Honda Element-specific parts, instruction, and the Element Club events. Jeff, welcome to Driven Radio. Thank you. Appreciate uh, you guys having me on. Uh, first of all, thank you for sitting through all oh my of that God, preamble yes. <laughs> with Mark and I talking about his car. You know, we tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> this has been his search for the Holy Grail, and he finally found the Grail, and there's a hole in it. You can't drink out of some bitch. H-O-L-E-Y. <laughs> just awful. So thank you for sitting all through all of that. Your parents worked for American Honda, sometimes getting to use one of Honda's early offerings for a year. You told me this. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't fathom it because a friend of mine had a CVCC. What was it like to cram you, three brothers, and your parents all in a CVCC wagon? There were four boys. I don't remember us all being in at the same time, but I'm sure we were. Somebody had to ride. You know, Lucky you. Very back That's not possible. Take in all the sun. <laughs> But they, Honda, where my parents worked in Portland, once a year they would have a drawing for who got a free lease of the current new vehicle, and my dad won oh my. for a year. And so we showed up with a dirt brown CBCC wagon. <laughs> Sexy. And I remember that, I don't know how I figured it out, but I think we were waiting to leave the house or something, but I, was, I had the door seat, and I remember sticking my hand out the window realizing I can touch the rear tire. And so I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh my God. Can I can I do that while we're rolling? So luckily I'm smart enough to know the rotation of the tire that it's not gonna hurt my finger if I can touch the tire while we're going. And so I actually got to feel the little rubber nubbies on the side of the tire <laughs> That's while we're extraordinary. Rolling. Just, you know, the dumb can I do this thing? Yeah, um, familiar. <laughs> a, a, a friend of mine, uh my best friend in high school 
had one of those as one of his first cars. Uh, but he had the, the two-door hatchback. My dad listens to the show every week. Dad, I'm sorry. It was Kendall. <laughs> we, we drove through a cornfield in that car. I was riding wow. shotgun, really waiting for death. And if you're driving through a cornfield and the corn's taller than the car, all you can see is the end of the hood and the corn laying down over it. I thought he was insane. I don't know if he was trying to impress me or not, uh, but that was not a real big car. And it was terrifying to be in with Kendall. I'm sure I'm certain your parents had more sense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of your parents, your folks wanted you and your brothers to start out riding a Honda Mini Trail 50 in an apartment because it was safer. Uh, how did you make the leap from that overprotective environment <laughs> to racing motorcycles? Um, I don't know. Weird thinking. Um, <laughs> we, we actually for for Christmas we actually got it was a it was a Q850 QA50 um, K0. So it was okay. the street version of the trail. So the fenders were just closer to the tires. Yeah, yeah. Um, um but they said we don't want you because, you know, I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or nine. They said, we don't want you out riding around where you can get run over by a car. You're going to learn inside. And so we broke a lamp and we broke a end table. And then they said, okay, you're outside. So that's, that's how we learned to ride motorcycles. I, I'd love to know the, the path. I'd love to know the thought process that d determines you know, if we start them off in the apartment, it's probably safer. I think I know. Well, I think yeah. I know what it was. Because uh, speaking of the 55 Plymouth yet again, uh, that thing had no seat belts, but my mom felt it was the safest car for me. You know, her dumb, stupid, youngest kid, and they're going to put him into a vehicle that's, you know, a few thousand pounds hurtling down a highway at 65 miles per hour with a metal dashboard. My folks Not gave me good. a Camaro. I'm convinced they wanted me dead. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. So, how well, did they, you... they probably figured I can't get it to speed inside. So Did you? Let's, let's see what they can do. No. Oh. I don't, oh, I don't three, think so. Are you kidding me? Three brothers. You know one of them said, I can get second gear in the hallway. Yeah, I was about to say, you got that straight stretch down the hallway. Go, baby, go. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody cut a slit in a Nerf football and stuck it on their head. <laughs> Up over mom's divan. <laughs> Luckily, it had covers on it. So. <laughs> Always got a dog leg in it. <laughs> I can catch well, second we at the we turn. Won't talk about, we won't talk about me running over my youngest brother once we did get outside. So. Yes. Yes, we will. <laughs> Tell us that story, Jeff. <laughs> it was like he had magnets in his pockets. I was... so. You learn, learn later on when I was racing, you learn, look where you want to go. Don't look where you don't want to go. Yeah. I was oh, watching yeah. him. I was watching him zigzag trying to get out of the way. I'm like, get out of the way, get out of the way. You've done an MSF <laughs> course. That's called object yeah. fixation. It is. And it's weirdly true. I thought they were full of S until I got on that bike. Yeah. And where oh, yeah. you look is where you where go. You, where you yeah. go. It's absolutely yeah. where you go. It's, uh, it's amazing when you're at speed how quickly that happens. <laughs> You know, in the living room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that lamp's getting bigger really fast. Yeah, really quick. Jeff hooked a door handle and ran into the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so please tell us about your motorcycle racing career and also trying to try not to be a track instructor at Laguna Seca. I kind of discovered motorcycle road racing on accident. I grew up on two wheels. When I actually got in trouble as a kid, I got grounded off my bike. That was my punishment. I did not know at, that Portland International Raceway, PIR, had motorcycle road racing until a friend said, let's go watch uh, the bikes go around. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like dirt track or motocross? He's like, no, road racing. I'm like, okay. Once we went and I discovered that, I'm like, okay, I need to do this. Because I had always wanted to, to race cars. I figured I would look at racing bikes. I figured I'd be a natural um, as an interim until I got into four wheels. But once I discovered road racing, I, I volunteered as a corner worker for the first year so I could learn uh, what not to do, what to do. And by about the third or fourth weekend that I volunteered to be a corner worker and would go around the track twice to my assignment, my assigned corner, um, 
they would realize they would once I got to my corner after doing two laps, they'd say, "Why did you go two laps to your corner?" I said, "Oh, I forgot what corner I was working." So then they realized that I had about the four times that I was being sneaky and just trying to build data until I could start road racing that I was trying to learn the track, what corners to take and everything else <laughs> by taking an extra lap just to putts around to the corner I was going to work. So anyway, I worked corners for a year and then I started road racing. I ended up doing that for seven years. I loved it so much. It was a lot of fun. One of the best times of my life. So before we move on, uh, you and I had a brief conversation about you almost getting to race an RC 30 um, a bike that is near and dear to my heart, and I still think I might be able to swing one day, although why in the hell I would sw- throw out 50 grand for a motorcycle I can't ride on the streets is beyond me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Just so you could sit on it in the garage or take it out once but in a while. But it's so damn sexy. Oh, they God, are. it's one of the most beautiful things on two wheels ever. <laughs> um, well, I I did had one i didn't get to race one i started out on smaller bike they are a glorious sounding looking bike yeah maybe someday if you do get one i'd happily come over and make sure everything runs well i I bet you would mark are you looking up rc30s (laughs) right now yeah yeah you're seeing what what. so for the uninitiated uh let's see rc30 was 1990 wasn't it 1991 it doesn't uh, I don't recall the year span. Uh, first I, released in 87. So, yeah, that's, okay. that's about the in, in that period. And it was the road race version of the VFR 750. But uh, when they came out, I think they only had like 75 or 80 horsepower. They didn't have a lot. And you had to buy the HRC race kit, the Honda Racing uh, race kit, and do all the modifications to it. And once you did, I think, if memory serves, they were north of 100 horsepower. It was a solo-only bike. It was a single. There was no passenger pillion or anything like that. It was the most glorious red, white, and blue paint scheme with white wheels and a single-sided swing arm. And they were incredible. In fact, the more I think about it, didn't the HRC race kit bump it to 106 or 107 horsepower or something like that? Or was it a lot more? Um, I don't recall. It's been a while, but... But they were also gloriously light. If, if Super me- light, yeah. If memory serves, they were sub 500 pounds, which at the time was a uh, super light yeah, sport. Yeah, like 396 bike. dry. Yeah, so. yeah. And uh, it was a V4 version you know ducati would do this much later what ducati would do uh with the 916 and the offshoot uh would really mirror a lot of what honda did with the rc30 honda cut the trail and man it just an unbelievable sport bike you you could ride it on the street but it was you know it was the detuned version and in 1989, $1990, they were $10,000. I was working for 12 bucks an hour. I couldn't swing a $10,000 freaking RC30. And now I have some money and they're 40 to 50 grand. I can't let myself do if, if 50 grand. I can go out and buy another Corvette for God's sake. You no, know, according to Mr. Wiki, uh, it was uh, 118 horsepower with the HRC kit in it. Uh, this is a Honda a VFR 750R. Yeah. And yeah, uh, my God, 118 horsepower, top speed, 153 miles per hour. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. Well, you say that I've gone faster than that on a bike. Sorry, dad. <laughs> God. So Jeff, your, your first car was an early Datsun 1200, uh, before you graduated to the one year only Datsun 260Z. Uh, why Datsun after your parents had been Honda employees? Um, well, they worked for Honda. I, I'm not sure. Like maybe after I was 11 or 12, they weren't working for Honda anymore. Uh, they went different routes. For some reason, we became like a Datsun slash Chevy family, other than the Chevy National pickup my parents had, which was a international truck with a Chevy bed. So it was really <laughs> weird. Um, <laughs> I went to high school driving their B210 uh, four-door. 
ugly mobile. I remember BG um, Tins. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So somehow I had a little money from college, like 850 bucks, And so I just went looking for my first car and happened to be a 1200, which I didn't know what they were. Or were they, you know, the B110, I guess, is the actual classification for the U.S. model. I think the price was right at 800 bucks. I had some money for gas after I bought the car, but it was a two-door only small little dots and it. it was kind of fun i actually got my friends into them after that well and your mom was also a leadfoot who'd race your dots and against yours how do you wind up racing your own mother through town <laughs> uh just competitiveness um <laughs> you know with three three brothers they're just the competitive angst was always there and she just didn't want to lose so uh we would just try and race from wherever we were to try and get home first and i think i was the first one to like take a sidewalk there was one little section where you could actually the cars were small enough you could hit the sidewalk and then so i beat her home and then the next time we did it she actually took the sidewalk and i screamed that she was cheating (laughs) that reminds me of ron white saying that they were profiling because they were pulling over everybody on that particular sidewalk (laughs) (laughs) so it sounds like you weren't the only gearhead in your family your mom was one and also one of your brothers went the right direction (laughs) and had a brief fling with a 69 corvette 427 tri-power can you tell us a little bit about that car and what it was like to ride in it (laughs) it it was brief um it was before i had my license so you know thank god for that but he showed up in a, it was my oldest brother. He showed up in a 69 427 convertible 427 four speed. What um, color was it? Speak slowly. Four, <laughs> 435 horse. It was orange with white. Oh, wow. Orange with white interior. So he bought it for 8,000. Okay. Raised for 14 and totaled it for nine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's he, a sad I think ending. he had it. He had it five or six months and then it was gone. He I, said I, a drunk driver hit him. I don't know if that's, yeah, right. if that's true. Drunk on speed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what you get for getting squirrely outside that bar. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Well, you said you got a chance to ride in this car. What are your memories of it? I remember it being awesome. I mean, back then, you know, the Corvette was the like the coolest American car you could be in. Still um, is. In the mid-80s. <laughs> um, and then, you know, of course, hindsight 2020. Today, what would that car be worth? Yeah, eighty. Uh, four thirty-five horse tri-power. Eighty. Um, Ten times okay. what your brother got for it. <laughs> Bless his heart. Yeah. So, so you know, it's nice to see that I actually got to ride in one, and you know, got to touch it and had experience with it. But again, short-lived. Much like you know, me moving the McLaren in the SCM garage, like twenty feet. <laughs> <laughs> at, least I, at least I I got to drive it. So. <laughs> Yeah, but much better than that, you road raced a Toyota Sport Racer for a year. For the uninitiated, please describe the car, where did you race, and what are the biggest differences between racing on two wheels and racing on four? Uh, Well, it was a a Toyota World Sport Racer. It was a spec racer built specifically, I think, for a race organization in Costa Rica. I believe they made 100 of them. And it used MR2, Toyota MR2 drivetrain, so engine trans, suspension components. So you could find replacement engines, and the base engine is like a Toyota Atlantic base engine. So we were getting used Toyota Atlantic cranks because we weren't hitting the high revs that the Toyota Atlantic, Toyota Atlantic engines were. What the car weigh? Um, 1,200 with driver. And Toyota it MR2 had, drivetrains putting out what? It's got to be close to 200 or better, right? No, it was like 170. It, it, That's not bad. Going from, it's not bad, but it, it was a steel, it was a open cockpit car, but it had quite a trellis work, steel trellis work around it that it was really safe. Yeah, but what I'm driving um, at, Jeff, uh, if the car weighed 1,200 pounds, you triple that, you get into average sports car range, 3,600 pounds, 170, triple that, that's 510 horse. That's not, uh, that's no slouch. No, it, but still coming from motorcycles to the car, it felt slow. So, sure, you know, comparative, comparative lap times, it just felt slow. Going from bikes to car, racing bikes that on a weekend I had a lot of track time like 15 minutes 
20 minutes every hour, um, where cars you get on a typical race weekend, you get one 15 minute practice on Saturday morning, a qualify in the afternoon on Saturday, another qualify Sunday morning, 15 minutes, and then you're racing Sunday afternoon. So you had no time to even come in and make adjustments. Well, and of course uh, the car fell quality. slow. You were used to racing in an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> there's that. So racing the, the Toyota, you only get about 15 minutes before you're on the track racing. Uh, how was it to race that car? Was this a, a series where weight was limited, power was limited, or were they all Toyota Sport racers? What was it like? Um, I shared the car with my race partner that I met. He was in the Sport Racer but they had grandfathered like a couple of V6 cars, one or two V6 cars in it. So we didn't even have a chance in his class. He just had to hope the V6s didn't show up if he wanted any kind of trophy to take home. But I was a novice going from bikes into cars. So in my novice class, I think I got third in a mix of different uh, open wheel cars and sport racers out of maybe six or seven cars that were on track. So I was I held off a Toyota Atlantic, so I was proud about that. But when I asked the Toyota Atlantic driver afterwards, I'm like, I was doing everything I could to try and stay in front of you. You never passed me. I thought you were going to. He's like, I was having some sort of ignition problem. Oh, so, oh lucky, but... lucky for me, you know, I I got to stay in front of it. Yeah, way to get kicked it, in the junk. Thanks fair. very little. <laughs> <laughs> you were an early progenitor of in-car racing videos just before and probably right about the same time as the advent of GoPros. <laughs> How did that happen, and who did you meet in that business? Who did you get to know? Well, I, when I raced, uh, luckily with the advent of, of having that business, it was called Digital Sport Video, and I wanted to mount cameras, systems on race vehicles so people could show their friends and family, this is what I do on my weekends and my off time. Because when I road race motorcycles, I tell family and friends that I race motorcycles. And they're like, oh, you guys jump really high. I'm like, no, it's road racing. It's, uh, they're like, what is that? I would try and describe what it is that you're racing with 50, you know, 49 other people on track at the same time, dragging knees, you're elbow to elbow, um, you're scraping body work, and it's Ugh. just a giant chess match on the track, and it's a blast, and it's fun, and you're doing 160 miles an hour down the front straight, whatever. And when I would, re I would research, watch videos for every kind of racing to take in data on how can I be better at what I do. And when back then, when you watch racing, right before commercial, they would cut to an onboard camera shot, and you saw, might see one or two corners, and then they go away. I wanted to see that full time. I wanted to see on board the whole race sure now you can but back then you, you couldn't so i when i retired racing motorcycles i said i want to start a business where i can mount camera gear on people's race vehicles so that they can take it home and show people and so that's why i started that and luckily enough i got to run cameras on all kinds of carts motorcycles uh, road racing dirt bikes um, classic race vehicles so i got to mount cameras on the elbrock family vehicles a whole bunch of different classic, historic, like March open wheel race cars, Yellow Brocks. Yeah. I ran two cameras per car. So Vic on his split window and then um, his two daughters, Christy and Cammie, they both had uh, GT350 uh, Shelby's and ran cameras on their cars too. And it was a hustle to get everything mounted so that they can get out on time. And I'm always cutting it right to the last second to get them out and start the cameras because I had 60 minutes of record time. If you've seen historics, they have a lot of uh, downtime waiting to go out and staging. Sure. So You published Chevs of the 40s. Uh, what did you learn while you were doing that, and how did you get into the publishing business? Um, with my digital business, um, I, well, I studied architecture when I went to college back in the day, but I always had a penchant for art and graphic design, and so I did more and more of that when I had digital sport video the video business because I was doing all my own graphics and everything else. And then because that was kind of seasonal, um, Chips of the 40s was hiring a desktop publisher. So they hired me and I did that for about seven years and did everything from database management to graphic design. They had like a million part numbers. So <laughs> I was really, really busy. But I got to learn because Chips of the 40s sells product for 1937 to 40, 54 Chevy cars and trucks. I learned a lot about that era of vehicles. 
And a lot of people would roll in with their street rods or their, their classic, like untouched, you know, 37 Chevy pickup. And I'd go out there and I would shoot pictures of everything that I could see from underneath the car to the engine bay to interior to see like what rare accessories they had or what they had from our catalog on their vehicle and stuff like that. So I learned a lot working there. And how did you go from Chevs of the 40s to uh, publishing Street Rod Headquarters? Well, we started adding more and more Street Rod parts to the Chevs catalog. And we had enough that we said, well, let's branch out and have a dedicated Street Rod department. So then, you know, we kicked off uh, Street Rod Headquarters, which was its own entity. and still is to this day. And just expanding. You were also art director for Keith Martin at Sports Car Market and American Car Collector for nine years, a job that gave you access to their press car pool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Is there any car that gets driven harder than a press car? What were some of the other things you got to do while you were uh, working for Keith? The complete opposite in, in company ownership transpired with Keith where he's like, I want to get a car that the staff really enjoys driving, which I'm like, oh, my arm hurts from being bent behind my back. But okay, where the owner of Chev's is like, don't touch my cars, you know, barely, barely look at them, that kind of thing. And he had quite a stable of cars. But Keith Keith wanted us to be able to drive cars that were in the stable. And, and I'll get to press cars in a second, but the actual cars that Keith had, you know, he's an alpha guy, as you know. Yes. Um, when we launched American Car Collector, we had a 64 Nova wagon, four-speed manual with drum brakes all around, and nobody wanted to drive it. I mean, yeah, I was no going to drive it all the time. Um, and it looked great, but nobody wanted to drive it, and he wanted the car to be out there and people to see it. And so we sold it, and so we were looking for another car, um, and that's when the 2000 Viper GTS ACR showed up. Mm-hmm. And since I'm a car guy, there were only a few of us that were real car guys and one that could drive a stick. Um, <laughs> and I was the only one that would clean the cars on the weekend. So I'm like, oh, the Viper's dirty. It needs to go home and get washed. So the Viper got washed a lot. This sounds like the <laughs> excuse I used to tell my dad to get his Corvettes out of the garage. <laughs> Very clean Viper. Exactly. And that was, that was a great car. It took us a month and a half, I think. Before we saw it, we took the money from the, the Nova wagon. Uh, we were over budget, but we had to wait for it to come from the Midwest. So we were researching it, you know, is it going to be okay to drive in city traffic and this and that. And people were saying that they'll kill you, that the clutches are really heavy. That was super comfortable. Uh, we put miles on that car. And being a 2000 model year, it showed up with 1,610 miles on it. Oh, my. Because uh, the guy that had it, he worked for Rick Hendrick. And that was his track day car. And so he upgraded the brakes, upgraded the exhaust. Uh, it was a stripe delete car, so it wasn't in your face with stripes. It was just all black on black, and it was a beautiful car. I don't know if you ever saw it. Only in pictures. I never got to see it in the flesh. But, yeah, I drove it to, like, Spokane, Washington and back, and I was ready for more when I got back. They're really comfortable. If You know, you have to be careful because they will bite you in the butt. <laughs> if you break the tires loose, and they grip when you're not ready, yeah, it'll throw you around. So No, the, the fastest way to see where you've been is to get in a Viper and break the tires loose around a corner. <laughs> and, yeah. And once they're loose, you're just along for the ride. You ain't doing jack. Uh, no. As no. far as a car that's got a clutch heavy enough that it wants you dead, uh, I'm going to have to refer to my 61 Impala hot rod. Uh, during COVID, my wife and I were looking for a house, and we took that car out to look at houses, and we got to the first house and realized we didn't have any masks in the car with us. So all the houses we wanted to look at, we were just going to have to drive by and see from the outside. In town, in that car, with a built 409 and a four-speed <laughs> You know, a couple thousand gear changes later, we get home, we pull it into the garage. I go to get out of the car, and my left leg won't hold me up because I've worn out my my left butt cheek. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I go to get out of the car, and I fall on the garage floor. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I know what a heavy clutch is like. <laughs> it's, it's like an old Chevy truck. Why is it you choose to drive a 1982 Mercedes 240D? with a manual, a car that 
has positively glacial performance. It won't even get out of its own way. Yeah, you might as well grab a book and start reading for an uphill on-ramp onto a freeway. It's just <laughs> really, really, really slow. Going back to my former race partner that we shared the Toyota World Sports Racer, he had, I told him that I wanted to take $2,000. You know, when you when you do the SCM thing in the collection car world, you, you can get sucked into wanting to do certain things. I wanted to take two grand, start buying a car. I didn't want to say flipping because I wanted to experience the cars and or motorcycles. I want to take two grand, buy a car, enjoy it, sell it, hopefully make a profit and get, see what the next vehicle is going to be with some marquee cars along the way, um, like a Mustang Cobra R, just different vehicles. But the end result was going to be an, either an F-type or an E-type Jag. Because um, talking back about press cars, one of the best pet press cars I really enjoyed was just the V6 Jag F-type convertible. But even the it V6 is nice. glorious. We had the V8, and what are they, 570? 570 horsepower, I think, 575. Yeah. It was, it's like a, a sport bike, a super bike on the street. It's just a whole lot of car that you're never going to use on the street. I yeah. preferred the V6, surprisingly, being a road racer and everything else. And I told myself that if I fall in love with the car along the way of whatever vehicles I get, if I fall in love with it, then I stop. I didn't fall in love with the 240D, um, a.k.a. Hans, the 82 um, <laughs> Mercedes diesel. But my friend said, I told him about the two grand I want to take. He's like, why don't you start with that and you can fix them up and sell them. And he had a tarp over it. It's a sedan. Obviously I'm a sports, you know, sports car kind of guy. I never saw him drive it. He's been a Porsche guy for a long time. And I'm like, I don't know if I want a slow sedan. I've never seen it move. <laughs> and when I started researching it, then I'm like, okay, uh, maybe I will. He's like, I'll give it to you. I'm like, I don't want you to give it to me. I'll pay you a buck. So I called the one buck Benz. I paid him a dollar for it. <laughs> Got, I had to do the brakes. I realized they're really easy to work on. It's a W123 chassis. It is a manual, but it does have electric sunroof. So I, I started driving and I'm like, I, I get why people like these cars and fall in love with these cars. It rides like a Cadillac. It's smooth. It is really slow. I, I get why people were pissed off when they stopped making that chassis worldwide because, you know, they're taxi cabs in Europe and all they, that stuff. They run so. forever. They're indestructible. They are one of the absolute cockroaches of the car world. You can't <laughs> kill them. But they're also glacially slow. And this one apparently has 650,000 miles on it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's not tired yeah. at all. <laughs> but the and surprising thing is... is he had, you know, he's had a variety of cars, Cobras, 911, um, stuff like that. He said that was the best car he ever owned. I'm like, okay, that says and something. And he sold it for a dollar. Sold it for a dollar. So you got to so. wonder how honest he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, Jeff, we're up to it now. Why the Honda element? found out how, ut how utilitarian they really are. Um, I didn't know much about them. I got sucked in to it once had one and, I, and the Cadillac converter got stolen, which happened for a lot of people yeah. on a variety of cars. I wanted to find a cat guard for it to protect the cat once it got replaced. And there was one guy making a cat cover. And the only way I could get the cat cover was to join a Facebook group for elements and message him and say, put me in line for one of your cat guards. Um, he was a little bit slow having run a marketing company um, for a number of years. Uh, the wheels started turning because he had to message each person back uh, oh. as far as trying to place an order for a cat cover. I said, maybe I can make my own cat covers and compete. Uh, there is quite a big audience right now at the time. But before I got my cat covers made, the rear, the element, the rear seats lift up to create this big void to haul lots of things inside the element. Dope. When you lift up the rear seats, there's these two big voids that uh, your kneecaps hit these rods where the seats snap into. So I was going to make a cover that covers these two voids. They're like 16 inches long. I thought to test the guy that was going to make my cat guards, I would order 10 pairs of these covers. It took me a, a couple of tries. I made some prototypes. Finally, I was really excited. It was Friday night at like 5 p.m. I said, wow, I really love these prototypes of these covers. I'm really excited about these. I wasn't trying to push them on anybody. I was going to make 10 pairs to see if I could sell them. 
And within 48 hours, I had 220 people saying, how do we buy those? Oh, my gosh. And so oh, that's, wow. that's when I said, okay, I guess I'm going to start a business and sell these. And now it's grown from that one part to 98 parts now. No kidding. For Honda Elements. Yeah, for Honda Elements. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So, they, they made them from 2003 to 11. It's a limited run, uh, 325,000, all built in Ohio. Even the cars that went to Japan were converted to right-hand drive and shipped over to Japan. You have that American tie, which is nice. Are are there stereotypical Honda Element owners? I mean, this car's been out of production for more than <clears> 10 years. The question when people come on to any sort of Element Facebook group is, oh, I heard they're bringing out the Element again next year. And it's always usually, no, they're not. And a lot of, some people say, please don't ask. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop asking when they're coming out with it. The surprising thing about Elements is an expedition to the Element. And the expedition, I think, last time I filled it up when the engine, prior to the engine seizing was, you know, it cost me like over 100 bucks to fill it up. So I started using an Element. And you, there's actually a has, hashtag called Element Stuffing where you go to buy like a washer and dryer and the guys rule it out and say, oh, you brought the wrong vehicle. We can't get this in here. And the owner of the Element says, throw it in. You're about to get educated. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they fit. I mean, I've hauled 10 foot lumber inside all closed up. Yep. Nobody knows it's in there. So you can uh, haul a lot inside. Another group of car owners who are just as rabid and also notorious for filling the cars up. Saab 900 and Saab 9000 owners. And I, I owned an 87 9000 turbo, and I'm here to tell you, you can haul a seven-foot armoire inside of one with the hatch closed and a queen-size wow. mattress on top. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I used one one of the times we moved. Uh, to what do you attribute the popularity of the Element? This car hasn't been in production for over a decade, and still the people who own them are rabidly loyal to them. They are. It, it's just surprising as you, you know, as you get sucked into it, you start learning about the different variations. They make manual trans um, up to 09 that you could get manual transmission. Some are all wheel drive. They made a version called the SE, which is the street custom, uh, which is a low right, lo- lowered version, uh, sportier version. So you have different variations that you can buy. The cool all wheel drive versions have a rear moonroof, which uh, there's a company on the West Coast, they have two locations. They make an e-camper. It's like the Westphalia Volkswagen buses. Um, it's a pop-up tent that you can actually go through the rear moonroof without having to go outside to get up in your tent and sleep. Oh, so you kidding. can choose to sleep upstairs or downstairs. On mine, mine's outfitted. I have a rooftop tent that unfolds. It folds to 24 inches wide, unfolds cantilevers over the side of the car to 48 inches wide, so it acts like an awning. But I have all kinds of stuff. I have cabinets that we're launching. Um, so the stereotypical customer, surprisingly, is older female who are solo camping, solo traveling across the U.S., whatever. That's the bulk of the customer base. I mean, obviously, we have a whole variety of people. We have people that are young, some 21-year-olds that are starting their own element parts business and detailing and service companies that they're traveling mechanics and stuff like that. But a lot of people travel in them. I love camping in mine. There's a company in Seattle area. He makes swivel seats for them that I've installed. So you can pivot it, and it really opens up the interior. I mean, it's just surprising, and we keep coming out with more and more parts. Sheila Brady, are you listening, sweetheart? This is all the crap you can do with your car. <laughs> Jeff, tell us about Element Driven. What do you offer to the Honda Element Enthusiast? Um, we offer a number of accessories that will help you use the element like you want. So you could, if you want to go camping, um, you want to get it lifted. We have lift kits available. You can lift um, a Honda element. Yeah, you can lift them. It's, it's surprising what you can get away with. Very utilitarian. I mean, we're not rock crawling with them, obviously. It'll do a lot of things that a lot of people want to do. There are people that are constantly saying, "I've been one, I've been looking for them. I've been wanting one since they came out new, but I, I see a lot of people that say, I've been looking for one for six months and I finally found it. Now I get to start putting stuff on it and set it up the way I want. But a lot of people that the biggest thing that draws me that I keep telling people why I stay in this business is because of the community. The people are really positive. It's like the modern day Volkswagen bus crowd. 
Yeah. I have so many people and I've been fortunate enough that I've worked for places that I've, the customer base has always been positive with chefs of the forties and three rod headquarters. Guys are spending their kids inheritance to build that car. They always wanted to build in high school. I'm building that 52 Chevy. I always wanted um, my kids can figure out how to sell it when I'm gone kind of thing. <laughs> and so those guys they they show up with a smile on their face. Same thing. I have so many conversations with element owners that are just smiling and happy because they're fixing it up the way they want to so that they can now go camping for a week or go on this long road trip and put, you know, 5,000 miles on it in a short amount of time. How very cool. You know, another one of our listeners, one you're familiar with, Mark, is a Honda Element fan. Daryl Osipik has really? one. Yeah, and Daryl swears by him. He says they're fantastic. And if he says so, I believe it. My next-door neighbor uh, for years uh, smartest dude ever. John Lipsky is his name. And John and his wife, Yuta, they, they bought one and drove it everywhere. And they had uh, a regular sized dog and then this freaking monster St. Bernard <laughs> and all of it went in that Honda element. They went everywhere. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe, it, maybe, it, you know, Honda can bring the element back right after they bring back the CRX. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I had one of those and it was the best little car and I really liked that thing. It was fantastic. All right, Jeff, final question, buddy. What is the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? I can throw two stupid kind of just innocent, innocent things that you can't do anymore. When me and my buddies were growing up and cruising all the time, mm -hmm. we did stupid stuff like now you can't do it if you have a manual trans, but uh, before you had the neutral safety switch, we, had starter races you just leave it in first gear crank it over with it in first gear and see oh who god. has the fastest starter oh my god that I, is the first time that, i've ever heard of that i do really i i do <laughs> now but if somebody was cheap cheating they would like put it in third gear and hit the starter and just launch past everybody but the other stupid thing and again it's not like majorly stupid is we would have a race first one to fourth gear without using the gas pedal so think about that 65 Corvette work. idles at uh, about 1,700 <laughs> RPM until you blip the gas. So, uh, I again, I think I'd be in competition there. Okay. I don't, really have I don't, to feather it to get it going. There's a good reason that Corvette would be first is because it's called a close ratio gearbox. You could start the sucker in third. Oh, my God. And it would be fine. And then Without just, a gas pedal? Yeah. Just, just, go okay. to, just go to fourth. You'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go well because first second and third are almost on top of each other and yeah. then fourth is your overdrive so on that close ratio you could probably start in third and you'd be fine wow uh, it's just going to fourth <laughs> you know uh you couldn't do it right out of the gate but you could do it pretty quick <laughs> we have been speaking with jeff stites of element driven jeff please take a moment and tell us where we can find you and element driven online and on social media you can find us at elementdriven.com and on social media. We're typically element driven everywhere else, YouTube, Instagram. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for your time. I appreciate coming on and talking to you too. First of all, great to have Jeff on somebody yeah. else who's also worked for sports car market. And anytime I get the chance, I have to say this out loud, Keith, thank you for letting me continue to do my dream job. And Keith, and uh, my editor, uh, Jeff Sabatini, uh, over at Sports Car Market, the editor-in-chief, who's been so kind and understanding with me uh, with the pending knee replacement and having not been able to cover anything for months, they've cut me amazing slack, and I can't thank you both enough. Which you can find, by the way, at sportscarmarket.com. That's right, by God. Uh, go check out FCM. Get yourself a subscription for the collector car world. You can do no better. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I'm not even that interested in like the super high end sports cars. So I do like to look at yeah, some but of I the, keep jamming the low end stuff. Well, I do like to look at some of the low end stuff that comes in. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, I'd like to have one. But uh, it is so it talks about every point of the car and and those blurbs about, from the uh, auctions really uh, that is so useful, especially when you're out trying to buy something to compare them that's to. That's right, because that's what I write. Thank you oh, very much. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you, sir. I just want to say. Oh, 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 a little bit of Elvis <laughs> and all of us. <laughs> so anyway, Jeff Stites, thank you so very much for being on. We appreciate you taking the time. 
And uh, what an interesting guy, man. He's done a little bit of everything, hasn't he? Yeah, it's kind of surprising because he's just so, he's nice and he's calm and all this stuff. And he his doesn't parents come across him to ride a mini bike in the, in the freaking house. In the apartment, yeah. <laughs> I get second gear going down the hall. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. I would have jumped that. the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Set this piece of plywood up on mom's armchair. <laughs> Oh, crap, I hit the spinet. I would have loved to have seen how that hand... I hit the spinet. I would have loved to have seen how that worked out. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. Gee, many Christmas. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And on LinkedIn as Driven Radio Show Podcast, because somebody took Driven Radio Show, and it doesn't even have anything to do with cars. Still burnt. <laughs> Still angry. I can't believe it. <laughs> if you have a story you would like to tell or someone you would like us to interview, please contact me at brett at drivenradioshow.com. I am Brett Hatfield for Mark L. Groves. Yep. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. That's right. You'll see us next time. Damn straight. Hopefully. On Driven Radio. Mm-hmm.